this will be uh, interesting. I'll um, just give a little bit more introduction about myself, a bit more about um, why I'm sitting here. Yeah, so is it, can you, is it, uh, there we go, that sounds a little bit better, right? Okay, there you come. Yeah, so if anybody needs a hearing-assisted device, they're on the counter that's right here in the social hall when you go uh, right outside the meditation hall. So um, one of the big pictures of why I'm here is that um, in the fall, I'll be teaching a semester-long course, a graduate school course on Buddhist meditation. So I'm going to condense into six hours, what normally would be like you know, 48 hours or something like this. And... Um, the assumption that I'm making when I'm teaching here is that we have people in the room that are absolute beginners, really don't understand this whole Buddhist meditation thing. What is it? Is there really more than one type? I thought they were all doing the same thing. And then as well as those people who have a lot of practice, I know there's individuals here in the room who do have a lot of practice, and to kind of talk about those things too. But in order to kind of make this an interesting, uh, relevant day, I'm going to rely on a lot of questions from you guys, discussions. I'm going to be asking questions that you can answer, and we'll explore some of these things. So what we'll be talking about today is what is, what are the different types of meditation? What's the context in which we would practice them? What roles do they have? What functions do they have? And what, um, and what, uh, like, what are they? This, I won't go into a lot of detail of exactly how to do them, but there will be guided meditations for each one of that we're going to do. So you have an, a, an experience of, um, hopefully an experience of what it's like, and you'll be able to see how the, the guidance is different for each different type. And so you'll have kind of a more of an experience as, okay, what is concentration versus mindfulness, for example? You can get a sense of that by differently how it's... Uh, how I lead us through. Um, And also I'll be talking a little bit about what do the Buddhist texts say about meditation? What do contemporary teachers say about meditation? And what can we learn from our own experience with meditation? So we'll be looking at it from different perspectives and acknowledging that they don't always agree Right? What is in the text isn't necessarily what the teachers are exactly saying. Maybe it doesn't line up with our experience. And that's something that we'll talk about. Like, what, uh, what is the most authoritative? Do we need something to be authoritative? Is there value in just holding these uh, different perspectives that sometimes maybe not be clear or maybe contradictory or something like that? So rather than an authoritative, this is how it is, and this is what you must do, go do it. This is going to be more something we're going to explore, talk about, discuss, experience, and those kinds of things. So I welcome a lot of questions. As I said, I'm expecting that there's a big range of experience in this room. And I really want to honor those people who are here. They're curious about Buddhist meditation, not sure that they know a lot about it. kind of want to deep bow to those people that, um, that there's something inside you that brought you here today as well as um, honor those people who have more experience and are kind of discovering like, wow, there's a lot to this whole meditation thing and kind of curious about how it fits together and where it works. 
So with that as a general introduction, I'll talk about um, what am I going to do with... Um, maybe I'll say one more thing. So meditation, I know a lot of us associate kind of Buddhist practice with meditation, often thinking that it's synonymous, and often we do talk about it as if that was synonymous. But meditation is only one-third of Buddhist practice. So the first is um, our behavior in the world and our behavior with others, interactions with others in our relationships often called virtue or ethics. So that's one-third of Buddhist practice. We're not going to talk about those today. Another third is what we could call wisdom, and that is like our understanding of what the Buddhists like to call suffering, our understanding of the dissatisfactory nature of so much of our experience, the stress of our lives, the... um, I don't know. We, I use the word suffering, but that's kind of... When we use the word suffering in English, it's a strong word, kind of in Buddhist English. Suffering is, doesn't have to be a strong word. It can be just this mild, mm, I wish things were a little bit different. It could be that kind of mild feeling to like, oh my gosh, this is terrible, get me out of here. So it has that range of meanings. So wisdom... Kind of, you know, really broad brushes out our understanding of suffering, the role it has in our life, what causes it, what leads to freedom from it. That's another third of Buddhist practice. And then the remaining third is meditation and mental development. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I just wanted to put that into context. It's not all of Buddhism. It's just this one piece. And then um, maybe I'll also um, define a little bit, like what is meditation? I I stumbled upon this um, definition recently and I thought, oh, this fits for us perhaps because we're right here in Silicon Valley. Um, A scholar, Kate Crosby, she studies Theravada Buddhism. I'll explain what that is later. And she calls meditation as a technology of transformation. And I felt like, oh, we're in the hotbed of technology here. So uh, in our own way, we're contributing to the Silicon Valley, right? In a very different way, but... But that's what a a scholar kind of talks about meditation. Many of you may have heard of Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a monk and a scholar. And he is a person who has translated the Buddhist text into English the most. So... Today, if I'm going to talk about texts, I think everything I'm going to talk about has been translated by him. So he's an American person. When he ordained, he took on this uh, Pali name, Bhikkhu Bodhi. And he describes um, the purpose of meditation is to subdue and eventually uproot the defilements of greed, hatred, and delusion. So in some ways, that's a technology of transformation, too, is to help us learn about and diminish the effect of, as well as uproot those underlying tendencies that are associated with suffering and kind of in the big picture. He goes on to say that meditation is to help us see things clearly. And for those of you who have done any meditation practice, say that's definitely the true. You can see all kinds of things 
Not all of it pleasant, not all of it uh, flattering, not all of it easy to see, but you definitely help see things clearly. And Bhikkhu also says that it brings happiness and freedom and peace. For me, this resonates a lot. I'm kind of interested in happiness and freedom and peace, and that's why I myself have been doing meditation. So that's what a scholar monk has to say. And then um, last year, there was a book that came out that was number one on the New York Times bestseller for quite a while that happened to be about Buddhist meditation. But it didn't, you didn't know about it that necessarily by the title. And the title uh, was called 10% Happier, and it was written by Dan Harris. I uh, loved this book. It was about somebody who very reluctantly stumbles upon meditation and thinks like, oh, what is this weird stuff? I don't want to do this. Ends up changing his life. And um, he describes it as something that can reduce stress without losing your edge, right? He's a professional person, and he, didn't, he was afraid he was going to be some new-agey, mamby-pamby person if he started doing meditation. And he said it's self-help that actually works, so from these different perspectives, a scholar, a monk, just a citizen, there's different views on what is meditation and what is the role and what is the function. And hopefully all of us here can kind of discover for ourselves what role it has and, um, and what it means for us. So today I'm going to um, focus on four types of meditation that are in the Theravada tradition. Without going into a lot of detail, I'm just going to say Theravada Buddhism is a type of Buddhism that is, I'm going to use some gross generalizations, right? I've done some scholarly work on this. So I'm, all these little bells are going off. No, that's not 100% true. But a gross generalization, it's a form of earliest Buddhism that is uh, still practiced today. It's predominant in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Burma, Laos, Cambodia, Sri Lanka. It's um, different than Zen meditation or the Zen tradition, and it's different than the Tibetan tradition. Using gross generalizations again, we could say these are kind of like three families, Theravada, Zen, which is kind of part of Mahayana, if that means anything to you, and Tibetan. So I'm going to be focusing on Theravada. The practice that we do here at IMC and at places like Spirit Rock or Shiloh Catherine down in Mountain View or the Insight Retreat Center that we have down in Santa Cruz are all derived from, inspired by this Theravada tradition. So we, that's our heritage, let's say that. Even though what we practice here in Redwood City in the West is a little bit different than what they do in the East, in Asia. Kind of makes sense. We're a different society. We've interpreted things differently. We have different priorities, so we emphasize different aspects of it. But um, in the big picture, we have the same heritage as our colleagues there. So then, um, how the day... Uh, 
my current thinking of how it will unfold. But, you know, I'm really kind of um, eager to engage with you all and see what would be beneficial and helpful. But my current thinking is, is that we'll, I'll talk a little bit about a meditation, type of meditation, do a guided meditation so you have an experience of it, talk a little bit more about it, and then we'll open it up for questions, and maybe we'll have some group discussions or things like that. So maybe there'll be some questions um, before, too. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. So before I jump into the first, maybe I should say that these are the four types of meditation we're going to do today and in this order. Mindfulness, which is predominantly what's taught here at IMC. Concentration. Metta, or a loving kindness, or Brahma Vihara. Um, we'll use a little bit of synonyms, so loving kindness. And the fourth is recollection practice, which we don't see a lot of here in the West, and it may be new for some of you. And um, I'm kind of excited about recollection practice. It, uh, for me, it feels like feels like when you... This is my ex- uh, experience I had was like cleaning out one sock drawer and then discovering like, oh, look, here's my uh, this $20 bill or my favorite pair of socks and they're like buried in all these meditations is this little jewel that um, often we don't uh, pay attention to. And we'll um, talk about why I think it's uh, so great and uh, some of the aspects of it. So before I jump into mindfulness. Um, Are there any questions about logistics or what we're going to talk or not talk about today? Any preferences of um, something you really want to talk about or something you really don't want to talk about? (laughs) And we'll use the microphones when we talk out there just because there's a few of us that are using hearing-assisted devices so everybody can hear. And it just helps us as a community if we can all hear one another. Also, I just want to make a comment. We are recording this too, so. Yes. Maybe I'll jump, uh, maybe I'll ask a question. So I'm making the assumption that some people in this room are beginners who don't have a lot of experience or maybe are just only curious about meditation can you nod your head or raise your hand or somehow say if you think that's a valid assumption I'm making great great I I know some of the people in this room and I know some people have more hours on the cushion than I do so um, I'm also acknowledging that there are a lot of people who have a lot of meditation experience I'll say that, um, you know, Gail Fronstall, the founder here and the, the key teacher here, he teaches um, Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation. Even, even though I had a lot of meditation experience, I kept on going to those intro classes because they were so interesting. It was so refreshing to get back to the basics, to hear questions that other people were saying. I felt it really supported my practice. So there's real value in just being reminded of kind of the simple things that perhaps we may think like, oh, this is for beginners. It's for experienced practitioners as well. That's part of the beauty of this. It's not like as your practice matures, you abandon the 
what you learn at the beginning and instead go on to the secret true teachings. It's not like that, actually. <laughs> I, I had this fear that that was true, that, oh, everybody else is getting the secret true teachings and I'm just getting the basic ones. But no, I don't think so. Okay, so maybe I'll, does anyone, I'll actually, yes, does anybody else have a comment or a question before I jump in? Yes, can we? Yes, I have one question. Um, I'm familiar with um, loving kindness meditation and wisdom meditation and some other variations, I guess. My question is, is in terms of the meditation techniques you're teaching today, could you, is it, do some of them focus on specific issues like within the precepts? The one I'm thinking about at the moment is um, non-attachment because it's kind of the source of suffering is craving and, and it's an issue for me, I, I assume for others, of letting go of things um, and so I guess I, I have to ask, is there a specific meditation for that, or is that an aspect of the techniques you're going to talk about today? Thank you. That's a great question. So this idea of does meditation or particular meditation support letting go or non-attachment, for those of you who aren't familiar with kind of the Buddhist philosophy, that's a key teaching, that really grasping and grabbing onto things is a source of our suffering. And that's something that I'll talk about, how each of these meditations supports that in a little bit different way, but they all do, because I would say that's kind of a fundamental teaching of Buddhist practice and kind of the Buddhist philosophy as well. And I'll try to remember to point that out when we get there. Yes, and here's a question back here. This, this is probably just a very personal question to me, but about 30 years ago in Berkeley, um, we, I took this transcendental meditation class, you know, and they gave you your mantra and all of that. How does this Buddhism or this meditation, this whole, your whole philosophy fit into transcendental? Yeah, so there are two completely different systems, I would say, maybe, or philosophies, but there's something really... In, uh, um, similar with transcendental meditation with concentration meditation they're not exactly the same but they're similar and I'll talk about that when we get to concentration Thank you. Um, could you talk more about um, like where you learned uh, like going to school and, and doing that stuff and just how that plays into like some of these teachings as well so a little bit of my background. Or stuff. Yeah, that's a valid question. Um, so I have two different... Um, I have had kind of two different approaches. One is, as Laurie said, um, I went to graduate school and studied Buddhist studies. So I've spent time poking around in the texts and learning the language in which the texts are written and reading and talking about them. And I've even um, done some teaching on them at, at the graduate school level. So that um, has informed me to see, like, okay, well, what, is, what has been um, preserved through all these years and attributed to the Buddha? The second is um, I've done a lot of meditation practice. I've 
cumulatively spent over a year in silence, sitting in an upright alert posture, <laughs> meditating. And so um, I've experienced all, the, all of what I'm about to talk about today. I also teach uh, meditation, which is very different than teaching, you know, about the texts or Buddhism, but teach, you know, how to meditate. I teach that here um, at IMC Wednesday, just a few days ago, was the last of a series that we that I taught, and I'll teach it again in October. So I kind of have those three different elements in uh, that have um, informed me. Then maybe I'll add that um, I'm, I'm teaching here at IMC for the Sati Center, but Gil Fronstall, who is the founder here, has been my teacher, and I've learned a tremendous amount from him, both. Um, have, I've had the good fortune to be able to talk to him, you know, one on one. What is what does this mean? What do you think about that? And are you sure about this? And as well as just to hear him teach a lot, both in the retreat setting as well as here. So, does, is that helpful? Is that yeah. okay? Okay, so maybe I'll go ahead then and jump in. So, Lori, can I ask you to pass out the um, the yellow handout? We're going to start with mindfulness. I think what's yeah. So it's on the flip side of concentration. I think these individuals here in the front row. Oh, I think we need two more. Okay. So I'd like to start with what we have up here top. Objects of mindfulness meditation is taught by Gil Fronstall and others. So mindfulness is um, also called like vipassana meditation or insight meditation. And Gil Fronstall defines it as the cultivation of clear, stable, non-judgmental awareness. And so part of what um, mindfulness meditation is, is choosing an object of which you are aware. Or sometimes the objects choose you because they're very compelling. So just identifying um, different objects and being aware that you are aware of them It's kind of a way to define it. A key word in there in that definition was non-judgmental. So we are trying to be aware of the object in a clear way without our bias, without our preferences, without our presuppositions, as best we can. Sometimes it's really hard to be with something uncomfortable not really strongly wishing it, that it would go away, but it is possible. 
And, but this is something that often has to be learned, has to be cultivated. And that's something that meditation practice, mindfulness practice, allows us to do. So talking about Bhikkhu Bodhi, this scholar monk again, he, he defines it as um, when you're mindful, it prevents the mind from slipping away from the object or drifting off. Or it's like, or the opposite, opposite of absent-mindedness. That's my favorite one because I know what absent-mindedness feels like. And kind of, you know, the opposite of that is kind of really being present and being aware. And I'll say that if we look at the texts, the Buddhist discourses, there's a number of really colorful similes that describe uh, mindfulness. And I'd like to share some of them with you. Because for me, these are kind of fun. And um, it's a different way to think about it. Right? There's different parts of our mind. Sometimes we can use the analytical mind to understand something really logically. As well, sometimes when we see a picture or we hear about a picture, we can understand things in a little bit different way. So some of the similes kind of describe mindfulness as a type of aloof observation or uninvolved type of non-attachment. So in this way, there's like a cow herder, you know, somebody who shepherds cows, who has to watch closely over her cows and to prevent them straying into the fields where the crops were ripe. But once the crop was harvested, she was able to relax and watch the cows from a distance. So there's this recognition that the cows should be over here and not over there, and something unfortunate would happen if they were over there. Either they would get sick from eating the crops, or the crop owner would become angry. But then there does come a time when the... um, you don't need to be said to have a careful attention to them, and you can allow the cows to go where they go. It's kind of like how uh, mindfulness meditation is too. Or it could be also like a surgeon who, um, in order to understand what um, needs to be excised or fixed, kind of like we'll probe into an injury first and make sure that they understand it and get the full lay of the land, so to speak, before they do surgery, before they excise anything or sew things up or something like that. So in that way, mindfulness kind of um, tries to understand or see things clearly. And with a surgeon can see things that you can't see just with your normal vision. There's also similes about mindfulness gathering information, which um, helps create the conditions for wisdom. Um, For example, a farmer has to plow the ground before sowing seeds. So mindfulness is kind of like plowing the ground, making it ready for new ideas, something new to grow. And mindfulness can... um, make it, um, I want to say malleable, but maybe that's not the right word, can help us see what would prevent things from growing. How's that? And also, mindfulness has a type of monitoring quality where it's like a charioteer who has has a... um, 
riding in a chariot that has four horses, for say, or something like this. And the charioteer is making sure that all the horses are going together and are aligned and are working together. There isn't one that's trying to go off here or the other one. So mindfulness kind of has an overseeing and a little bit of a directing quality, too. And it's also like a gatekeeper or a guard of a town. And mindfulness needs to know kind of like the big picture of what is what kind of a entity to allow into the town and what kind of entity to keep out of the town. So they have to know the big picture of what's beneficial, what's not beneficial, as well as what is this entity. Is it beneficial or not beneficial? So I just offer that to show kind of there's a varied way in which mindfulness is talked about, and we will experience it and use it in these different ways in our lives and in our practice. So at the top of this handout, there's these objects of mindfulness meditation as taught by Gail Fronstall and others. I put this here because for those of you who have taken the um, introduction to mindfulness meditation here at IMC, you know that we teach it with, first we start with mindfulness of the breath, like resting your awareness on the breath. And then the subsequent week we talk about mindfulness of the body, be aware of sensations in your body, whether they're pleasurable or uncomfort, uncomfortable. The third is we kind of expand it to include emotions, our emotional life, love, anger, confusion. And often the way that we understand our emotions or that we work with our emotions, shall I say, in mindfulness is we translate them, not always, sometimes, into their physical correlates. If you're really sad, is there a heaviness in your heart? If you're really angry, is there heat in your face? If you feel, if you have a lot of fear, is there like a gut in your stomach? And we do this kind of translation into a body sensation because body sensations are here and now. And sometimes they're a little bit easier to work with. If we're just staying with what's in the mind, then we um, often can get lost in the story. Oh, I'm going to feel this way forever, and I felt this way last week. And, you know, it's so easy to kind of spin out and build a story about it. So instead, we kind of translate into the body. And the same with thoughts, which is the fourth... um, element that we teach here at IMC. And the same idea that we can look at thoughts, but we can look at the content of thoughts. But what is often most useful is to look at the process of thinking. Because the process of thinking is here and now. The contents, they could be anything, right? We We all know this, the past, the future, fantasies, memories, planning. And so what I mean by process really generally I'll say you can just notice are your thoughts are they images if so what color are they colorful or are they sepia are the images moving really fast are they moving really slow Um, or maybe your thoughts are a conversation that you're having either you're trying to explain something to somebody or maybe you're in a dialogue so that's what I mean by the process of thinking. So rather than the content, the process. 
So that's how we teach it here, and I'm going to um, lead us through a little guided meditation with that. So, let's go ahead and do that. Let's just for, um, trying to decide whether we should stand up for, um, let's just stand up for like 30 seconds, just to make it easier to then uh, settle back down again. Sometimes it's easier to just do that. And maybe while we're standing, for those of you who don't know, I'll say kind of two key elements about posture. You can sit on the floor, sit on the chair. Here's two key elements that will make it more comfortable. Hips higher than the knees. This is really important um, if you want to sit for longer than two minutes without needing to uh, adjust your posture. Hips higher than the knees. And the second one, um, have your, like a little bit of openness at the base of your skull, and that um, often is done by tucking your chin just a little bit. And those two things, hips higher than knees, space at the base of your skull, will cause you to have an alert spine, kind of an upright spine, and from which your limbs can hang from, and that's the most comfortable to be. Okay, let's sit down here. Yes, you're welcome to get any cushions or things that you think that you'll need. I'm talking a little bit fast on this part just because I have a lot of information. Again, I'll slow down in a minute, don't worry. That feels like I'm just blathering on. Yes, and if you're feeling a little bit uh, chilly, this is a unique feature of IMC. <laughs> the air conditioning comes from there, and it hits people right about here. So it'll be a little bit chilly for a few minutes, and then it'll kick itself off. So it's kind of a... If you feel like you just don't want to be in the cold, you can go up on the stage. There isn't any breeze up there because they're underneath the vents. So just a... FYI, if you want to modulate how temperature you are, if you want a more cooler, sit right here in the... We have our micro-environments here in the hall. So let's take an upright, alert posture. And gently close your eyes. And see if you can take a few long, slow, deep breaths just to connect to the breath. We'll allow the breath to come back to normal. And just notice where you feel the breath primarily, easily. Is it in your abdomen moving? The chest moving? Or maybe the feeling of air going in and out of your nose.
And then with the exhale, see if you can just soften any obvious tension in the body. Maybe there's tension in the face. If so, just let it go with the exhale as best you can. If you can't, that's okay too. Maybe there's tension in the shoulders. Let's see if we can bring some ease to the shoulders. And the belly, just bring a little bit of softness there. Maybe let it hang forward, relax. And our feet, feel the ground underneath them, feel grounded. So now I invite you to rest your awareness in your right hand. How does it feel from the inside, the palm of your hand, the back of your hand, your thumb, fingers, Maybe there's tingling, throbbing. Maybe there's warmth or coolness, the pressure. How does it feel, like from the inside? What are the sensations? Without having to think about the sensation so much, it's just kind of relax, rest, there in the in your hand and just notice what's there very simple doesn't have to be complicated Just noticing the sensations in the right hand.
And now, in the same way, just very gently, simply, you can shift your attention to the sensations of breathing. That may be the movement of the abdomen, the movement of the chest, or maybe the sensations of the air going in and out of the nose. Just like with the sensations in the hand, just rest your awareness there and allow the sensations to show themselves. Does an inhale feel the same as an exhale? See if you can hang in there. Notice like a complete inhale, the beginning, the middle, and the end of an inhale. And just notice the sensations associated with the movement of the abdomen or the chest or the movement of air through your nose. Just rest in your awareness and the sensations of breathing. Is the transition between an inhale and an exhale, does that feel the same as the transition from an exhale to an inhale?
let's open up the awareness and rest our attention in sounds. It could be the sound of my voice, the sound of the fan, maybe the traffic outside. And just allow the sounds to come to you. There's no need that we have to go out and get them. We don't have to figure them out. Just notice. Just notice when sounds arise in your awareness. When one sound ends, perhaps there's another sound you can rest your awareness with. No need to do anything about the sounds, we're just noticing. If you find your mind wandering, you can bring it back to the sensations of the breathing, or maybe sounds, whichever feels more compelling or the easiest for you to rest your awareness in.
see if we can bring a relaxed, easy way to rest our awareness in either the sounds or the sensations of breathing, whichever is most compelling or is easiest, most easy for you to engage with or rest your awareness in. If you ever feel like you're lost or confused or not quite sure what to do, just bring your awareness back to the breath, the sensations of breathing. And then to end this sitting, bring your awareness to your feet, feeling them on the ground, feeling grounded. Feel the pressure of the cushion or the chair on your body. And here, present. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. So in that meditation, I invited you first to rest your awareness in your hand. Hopefully that was a neutral object or a neutral experience. And just to notice that you can notice, right? We all have this capability. And then I asked you to shift it over to the sensations associated with breathing. Classically, mindfulness meditation is done with an emphasis on breathing. And then um, to open it up to sounds, which often has like a different experience, like breathing, mindfulness of breathing is, feels a little bit more directed, whereas sounds often can feel a little bit bigger and then the sounds arise in them. And then I invited you to choose between uh, sounds or the sensations with, associated with breathing. Part of the reason why I did that is for you to whatever feels most comfortable. Some people have a preference for one or the other or they have a, um, the one is more available to them. They feel like they can relax into the sensations of one easier than the other. As well as to highlight that mindfulness is not about the object so much that we're choosing. It's more that we're noticing. It's more about the activity of noticing. It's more about the experience of noticing. So in this way, we can pay attention to anything. We can pay attention to anything, including those things that conventionally we would say are distractions. The neighbor's dog barking, right? That doesn't have to be a distraction. 
we just turn it into our object of our meditation. The uncomfortable feeling in our back, that doesn't have to be a distraction, that can just be the object of our meditation, the sensations in our body that are um, associated there. So that's one of the hallmarks of mindfulness meditation, is it's really about a noticing practice. And the way that it's taught here, as I um, described, we kind of privilege those sensations that are associated with the body, including the breath, because those are often the easiest and the most neutral, the ones that are least likely to have a story associated with them. And it's also, sorry, something that, um, another hallmark of mindfulness, I would say, is that it can be very inclusive. And I've, is that it's um, just, it's about allowing what is to be there. It's about being in touch with reality, about like what's really here. And so, and we discover that by noticing, by paying attention. So does anybody have any questions about the meditation we just did um, or about what I've said so far about mindfulness before we go on to the second part about mindfulness? Yes, there's... It goes in the... goes back here. You can hand it to Joe and he can hand it to to Kim and then Kim can hand it. It'll be great. We'll have a little marathon. Excellent. Because they're in a relay race, like passing the baton. I just had a question about falling asleep. I find whenever I meditate for long periods of time, I'm kind of like nodding. Um, do you have any pointers for how you might bring yourself back to the practice? Yes, this is such a common experience, <laughs> yeah. right? You can imagine. First, of course, right, that uh, when we relax and close our eyes, well, usually when we do that, it's time to sleep. So, you know, our, our mind is uh, habituated to that. A few things you can do. Um, Open your eyes slightly, so just that there's a small, um, so that there's light coming in, but not that you're looking. Like maybe have a 45 degree angle down in what you're looking at and have a soft gaze. So that's one, and light. Um, Two, to bring some energy to your posture. Sit up just a little bit straighter. It's amazing how connected our body and our minds are. This is something when you do mindfulness practice becomes really apparent, the connection between them. So um, just being alert. If you're sitting on the floor, if you were sitting on a chair, to come up off the backrest makes a big difference. You're much, much less likely to fall asleep. So sit upright, as well as bring energy maybe to what's happening in your mind. Um, You could do a noting practice, such as, um, you could say, a little soft whisper in the mind, in, when you do an inhale, or out, when you do an exhale. And I know some people will even do in, 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 out, 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 in, 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 out, out, out. You know, so that's like a little bit of a quiet activity that kind of keeps you involved or some things to do. So those are some things off the top of my head to do falling asleep. Oh, yes. 
Um, so when you were talking about the breath and noticing the sensations of the breath, so I was able to kind of <clears throat> notice the kind of overall general sensations of inhaling, exhaling, or like the air coming in, air coming out. But then when you start going into a little bit more detail, um, you know, the difference between the two or noticing a little bit deeper sensation, I, I wasn't really able to to notice the details and I didn't know if that was like a lack of language or words on my part or a lack of perception or you know what it is that how to get deeper into those perceptions yeah so I one thing that uh, meditation is mindfulness meditation in particular is a laboratory in which we get to explore all kinds of things we kind of sit on the cushion and we see so this is something that you could explore like oh do I, am I, you know, this uh, beginning, middle, end of an inhale didn't really make sense to me. Is there a beginning, middle, end of an exhale? And you could just kind of drop that question in and then just rest your attention there and see. Is it, is it a language that the words that I'm using just doesn't make sense? Or maybe the, um, your perception is that there's just breathing. What's the big deal about all these different parts of breathing? I'll say that this is one thing that um, the more we practice, the finer the detail is that we can see. It um, gets to be pretty amazing of um, how how the the detailed things that we realize that we were conflating things that actually are distinct, but we didn't know that until we started to meditate and really pay attention to them. So that's kind of the just like anything we do, play the piano, learn a new language. The more you do it, the more skill you have, the ease you have, and the same is with meditation. That things become more clear, um, easier to stay longer, can see more details, those types of things happens the more we do it. Is that, does that answer your question? Yes. And then there's one question back there. What if that you're when you're meditating and you're concentrating on sounds, but there are certain sounds that are distracting or that are uncomfortable to you that are filtering in? You know, you're trying to relax and listening to everything, but you know, it could be a dog barking or mm-hmm. silverware clanging, or you know what I mean? Yeah, that are very kind of disconcerting. What, what do you do about that? Then you then you tend to focus on those sounds. Yes, thank you. That's an excellent question because it um, gives me the opportunity to talk about something that I um, neglected to mention. So at every moment, any moment, every moment, there are at least two things happening. I would argue there's three, but for now let's say there's two things that are happening. There's a sensation, and I'll use this word sensation, including like sounds coming in, emotions arising, thoughts going through, feelings in our body. Those I'm all calling sensations. So there's a sensation, and there's our relationship to that sensation. I don't like this sound, dog barking. I don't like silverware clucking. But it's still a sound, right? I mean, there's still sounds. So this is something that mindfulness meditation allows us to do, is to see the, um, maybe the, to tease apart 
the sensation from our relationship to the sensation. There's nothing inherently bad about dogs barking. That's what dogs do. They bark. So it's we get to notice how maybe the tightening in our body, the or maybe it's a uh, idea we want to jump off the cushion, call the neighbor, tell them to keep the dog quiet or something. You can kind of like notice these impulses that you have in relationship to certain types of sounds. And that's mindfulness as well. So and what I could say for this is just to notice the sounds and notice your reactions to the sounds. It's still mindfulness, right? You're still noticing. You're just including more than the objects, but also your relationship to the objects. And that's true for everything. Physical sensations, types of thoughts, emotions, right? We have a relationship to them. We have a preference for some. I want more, please. Or we have a version, go away, right? We kind of have these uh, movements of the mind that are associated with different ones. And the more you meditate, the more you can see those. And the more freedom you can have when you start to see them. You're not feeling that compulsive uh, wish to push things away or to pull them forward. So now I'd like to um, move forward a little bit and go towards... Okay, so we talked a little bit about um, mindfulness and how it's taught here at the center, but I'd like to introduce what are the primary texts that talks about mindfulness meditation, and in here also to talk about what do other teachers teach about mindfulness meditation, right? It doesn't, uh, the way that we do it here at IMC is one way out of many ways. So what are some of the other ways? Which you may hear about if you read different Dharma books, if you go to different centers, if you talk to different people, go to uh, different retreats, you may be exposed to these different emphases, and we'll kind of um, explore how they're all related here. So in this box in the middle of the page, four foundations of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. The Satipatthana Sutta, that's just the name of a discourse um, from the time of the Buddha. It's preserved in the sacred texts of Buddhism. It's a foundational text. There's, unlike the Bible, which is kind of like, you know, one book, the Buddhist texts are volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes. Some of them haven't even been translated into English yet. They're just really big. And of these thousands and thousands of pages, the Satipatthana Sutta is one that has been pulled out and for this tradition is kind of um, held up as some of particular interest. So we look at this one. You know, different traditions will have like different emphasis of different texts. But I will say in the Theravada world, we all agree that this um, text is important. However, we interpret it differently, place different emphasis on different parts. And I'll say one uh, other tiny thing about this text. That um, all the scholars pretty much agree that this is a um, highly, if you read it, you'll discover this to be true, highly stylized, very, um, it's clearly composed. It doesn't have the feeling of a conversation. A lot of the discourses are a conversation that the Buddha is having with somebody. This one is, feels like, looks like, and if we peek into the language, we can see that there's 
kind of like different dialects of language that are put together into one text. So the scholars say that this is one that has been composed, that they took a little piece from here and put it in, a little piece from here and put it in, and made this bigger text. So with that as a kind of a backdrop, we can understand maybe how there's so many different um, elements here. So, in the Objects of Mindfulness taught by Gil Fronstall and others, we have these, what we could call four, we use this word foundation. Uh, I think now most people would translate it and use the word differently, but it's kind of what we're used to. I would say four places to establish one's mindfulness. How's that? That's kind of like rather than mind, uh, foundation, exactly. So for Gil Fronstall, he has breath, breath, body, emotions, and thoughts. And you can see, if we go now to the Satipatthana Sutta, we have body, feeling tone, mind states, and mind objects. It's kind of like breath, body, emotions, and thoughts. So what Gil has done, he's translated this ancient text into kind of, you know, here in contemporary times, how do we understand our experience? In the Buddhist time, we don't know that they understood emotions exactly the same way that we do, because they don't talk about them the same way that we do. So in this text, there's these four foundations, these four places to establish or arrest your awareness. And within those four foundations, there's different subcategories. So here, um, within body, we talked about breathing. We talked a little bit about um, posture, for example, like how to stay awake, just to kind of notice if you bring your posture a little bit more erect. So that's just kind of bringing awareness to your posture. Activities are when you're walking, sitting, standing, reaching, you know, those types of things. Anatomical parts, what are the parts of the body? Head, hair, teeth, body hair. I don't there's a list of 32 parts. I don't have it memorized, but that's some people do this practice. The four elements, oh, yes, which are earth, water, fire, and air, and a decaying corpse. So you can see that there's a lot here other than what we just teach here um, in mindfulness and um, here at IMC. But some of um, our monastic friends and colleagues, as well as in Asia, they may spend more time with these other subcategories than we do here, than we do here at IMC. I'd say broadly in all these categories under body, see that it goes from the most obvious breathing to the most detailed and analytical a decaying corpse because the instructions for a decaying corpse are to like bring one to mind so that's like that's a little that's different than just noticing the sensations of the body uh, breathing right it requires a different type of faculty of the mind so then this list goes from the just noticing to a little bit more analytical. And it also includes the body in action, right? Our bodies move and they do things, right? Posture, breathing activities. 
as well as the constituent components or the static bits of the body. So that's what we have, like the elements and the anatomical parts and corpses aren't usually moving. So it's just like looking at the body from all these different ways. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, it talks about like we're... um, why or things to accompany your mindfulness of these. For example, if you're going to bring to mind a decaying corpse, is that also is the instruction um, something like, not exact quote, just like this corpse, also my body will be like this. So it's a way to kind of work with death and get away a fear uh, a fear of death and to recognize that our bodies are not permanent and that they are going to age and get sick and die. So that's a little bit different than how I was just leading you guys through a guided meditation of, you know, just notice the sensations. And the next uh, of these foundations in the Satipatthana Sutta is feeling tone, Vedana. Feeling tone is not the same as emotions. Although some people in English, they will translate Vedana as feelings. And in English, feelings often seems like it should be emotions. But here in the text, they're talking about feeling tone. And what I mean by that is, the, is something pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. So the, the quality that it has for us not not whether we're mad about it or sad or angry but when there's a sensation that arises what is our first initial hit is it pleasant or unpleasant and bringing mindfulness to this helps us to to recognize how so much of our life is about avoiding those things that are unpleasant and going towards those things that are pleasant. And right, I think we kind of all notice this in some way, but when you start to pay attention to the feeling tone, it becomes more and more clear, and you start to notice, like, wow, I'm just like this machine that's going after pleasant experiences, right? It's pretty amazing. Ray Freud talks about this, too. And then when also when we start to pay attention to these things, we start to notice how it's kind of... Uh, a, we notice the ephemeral nature, like something is unpleasant, and then we have a thought that's pleasant, and then, oh, we have a sensation that's unpleasant, and, oh, then we have a memory that's pleasant, so that we're, our days are filled with things that are pleasant and unpleasant. And this helps us to become a little bit less uh, tangled up with pushing away those things that are unpleasant and trying to get things that are pleasant. If we have this real experience of seeing how ephemeral they are and how changing these experiences are, then we have a little more confidence that, oh yeah, okay, this is unpleasant, but just hang out here, something pleasant is going to come along, you know, you'll have a memory, something that will distract you, or something like this. So this kind of leads a little bit towards our um, detachment that we were talking about earlier when you see this nature of them. And then there's a, a, a second category is worldly and unworldly. Kind of a 
awkward translation. When we talk about concentration, we'll talk more about what are these unworldly sensations. For now, I'll say in general, these are pleasant sensations that are not associated with uh, particular objects out there, but are associated with um, contentment, generosity, um, being happy when somebody else is happy, um, having a certain amount of concentration where you have a calmness. So those are pleasant sensations that are more internal and arise out of our practice, out of wholesome things that we do. It's kind of the unworldly. Does anybody have any comments so far about questions about body or feeling tone in the Satipatthana Sutta or about the Satipatthana Sutta in general? Yes. I'm not sure where the microphone is. Yes, so here we go. If we can have a mic right down there. And I think the green light has to be on. I don't know if it is. Now it is. Uh, could you say a little more about the uh, worldly and unworldly feeling tones? Yeah, maybe I'll offer this as um, another kind of like really broad... Um, Characterizations. They've been translated lots of different ways. Some are like, of, I guess literally the literal translation is of the flesh, not of the flesh. So what, what thing of the flesh meaning? What things are related to our sense, sensory experience, to what we hear, what we taste, what we feel? That's the worldly. Unworldly is, you know, internal, as a, that arise from conditions that are not sensory not related to touching, tasting, feeling, eating, something like that. I'd say another kind of really broad uh, way that we could describe this, the things that are on the path to greater freedom and peace and ease are unworldly, and things that are on the path to not, let's say this, not on the path to greater peace, freedom, those are the worldly so if we start to pay attention to our experiences, we can kind of we get a sense of like, oh, yeah, I've been here before, and this usually leads to my having a lot of aversion um, or getting angry or something like that. So that would be like not on the path. Or, oh, yeah, I've been here before, and this usually leads to having greater ease, having greater peace, having greater... Uh, freedom in my life. So kind of recognition of that. Is that helpful? Uh, yes, it helps some. Uh, 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 still, the, um, you mentioned the worldly as like sense experiences and so on, and then otherworldly would be what? Yeah, so a feeling of like when we're have a sense of concentration there's a type of pleasure that's in the body when we're concentrated that's different than pleasure due to uh, 
sitting in a hot tub, for example. Or there's a type of uh, joy that's in the body with concentration, too, that's different than the joy of getting birthday presents. Or, you know, so, or there's a, it's a good feeling in your heart when you help somebody, you know, those types of things. So those are the other world. Yes. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, yeah, can you say more about the four elements practices? Yeah, so I, th- I think I, and let's see here. If we look at footnote number two, I wrote, the Pawak Sayadaw tradition of meditation emphasizes mindfulness of the breath and mindfulness of the four elements, earth, water, fire, and air. So those are the four elements. But then how they kind of translate the four elements into like experience is hardness, heaviness, warmth, and motion. You know, so earth is hardness, water is heaviness, warmth is fire, and motion is air. I've also seen, I've heard of different uh, ways that these four elements are translated into experiences. So there are some, um, so Pawak Sayadaw is a Burmese teacher. He comes here to America occasionally. There's, um, I know quite a number of people who have gone to Asia and practiced with him. He's quite famous, very influential in Burma. And so rather than, well, let's say, for those people who aren't doing mindfulness of breathing, he teaches, be mindful of the heaviness of your experiences or the sense of, motion, which could be movement of your abdomen. Maybe you could feel your pulse, which is kind of the type of movement. Maybe you could, um, I'm not sure exactly. I haven't done a lot of this practice myself. Or um, also temperature, right, for the fire element. You know, where in your body is a little bit more cool or a little bit more hot. So these are like alternatives to what I described when I was leading you guys to like sensations in the hand or uh, movement of your belly or sounds, you could motion or temperature or heaviness, which is often like pressure or something like that. Just kind of highlighting that there's so many um, different ways in which we can do mindfulness meditation. And then maybe while we're looking at the footnotes, I'll say that um, footnote number three, for those of you who are familiar with this idea of the Mahasi Sayadaw Upandita tradition of meditation, they emphasize uh, mindfulness of postures. Gil Fronstall, the teacher here, he studied with uh, Upandita for quite a while. Uh, Upandita is an old person. He used to come and teach in San Jose. He's from uh, Burma. Um, every summer, but I think he's getting too old to travel now, so he doesn't. I would say, probably, uh, to my knowledge, all the senior teachers at Spirit Rock right now have studied under Upandita. A characteristic of Upandita, as well as um, emphasizing postures, is his strictness. Incredibly strict. And has no tolerance for any, um, any deviation from his teachings. A friend of mine who recently, just a few years ago, uh, practiced with him when Upandita was here in San Jose, 
said that during retreats, you know, you're eating. Of course, right? You have to eat when you're there for quite a while. And uh, somebody came up to him and said, slow down, you're eating too fast. And he's like, sit up, your posture should be straight, you know, and uh, you're drinking too fast. So there's this real kind of strictness. You must be behaving a certain way. And then when my friend was doing walking meditation, a different person came up to him, you're walking too fast, slow down. You know, so there's this real kind of, it's a, I'll use this expression, it's more like a warrior type idea of, you know, you need to really apply yourself, really have a lot of energy and a real strictness type of, you know, to kind of slay those uh, unmindfulness moments, that, that kind of an attitude, this kind of Upandita style. And that, um, in the history of this tradition, I know at IMS, which is the big retreat center on the East Coast, they used to kind of teach that a little more robust style. And then that brings me to footnote number, where do we have this? Five. Utejaniya tradition of meditation emphasizes mindfulness and mind states. So I haven't said exactly what are mind states yet, but I'll say that um, kind of, we have Upandita, who's very strict and very uh, warrior-like on one end of the spectrum. I have Utejaniya, who's very influential right now. He just taught at Spirit Rock, I think, later or earlier this year. And I think he was at uh, Forest Refuge as well. Andrea Fella, who teaches here, has studied a lot with Utejaniya. And she um, just finished a retreat of the Utejaniya style. Um, so she's greatly influenced by him. And he's like the opposite end of the spectrum, a little much more relaxed. Just be present for what's happening. And less about um, pay attention to uh, each step you're taking, each breath you're taking, each um, uh, sound you hear. Utejaniya is notice the attitude in your mind. Are you feeling relaxed? Are you feeling aversive? Are you feeling love? Are you feeling uh, uh, joy? So he's calling this mindfulness of mind. So rather than really distinct objects, sound, breath, is more kind of like, I'll say this word, kind of like mood, attitude, What's the quality of your mind rather than what's the objects in your mind, right? They're kind of a different emphasis. And with a different emphasis is also a kind of a different attitude towards practice. Utejani is much more relaxed. He does, he's not much less strict. Um, I know people who have practiced in that tradition um, say it's kind of easy to get lost and just do your own thing and forget that you're meditating because you're... There's so much relaxness about it. And when you're on retreat with him in Burma, my friend was like writing emails, you know, back to America. Hi, I'm having a great time. And we're like, what? Aren't you supposed to be on retreat? So, so it's a little bit different. Yes, Laura, do you want to say something? So I have a, a question about um, mindfulness from a maybe a broader perspective because these are like, the way that I'm seeing them is there are different categories of kinds of experiences that we can pay attention to, right? So we can pay attention to experiences in the body. We can pay attention to, um, you know, experiences of emotion or experiences of, of mind states. And in a way, it seems like 
These are just convenient ways to categorize or to, to, to say, oh, you know, if you want to practice mindfulness of the body, there's different kinds of things that we can pay attention to. But it's all about our relationship to the phenomena of the experience, right? It's paying attention to, to, to what happens when we pay attention to something, whether it's body or thought or mind state, and, and seeing how that, how that phenomena occurs or the nature of it or the process of it. That's what I'm kind of getting from it is that we're, we're, we're actually paying attention to our experience and we can, we can break it into these little nice, neat categories. But in general, it's how we hold each experience and what happens as we, as we observe each of those experiences, whether they're sound or, or you know, yes, objects so- of mind. I would, I would, let's see if I understand what you're saying. Because I would agree, right? We have so many experiences and mindfulness, different teachers, and this person could say the Satipatthana Sutta has all these things in here just to highlight there's so many different things. But I would say the difference is some teachers will emphasize just pay attention to the object and less about your reaction to them. And some will say, notice the object and your reaction to them. And some will say, oh, just kind of pay more attention to your reactions. So there's the, that's how different traditions or different teachers will kind of emphasize different ones. What, what, is that what you were saying, Lori? Yeah, a little bit. Actually, it, it was nice because you pointed out that there's different emphasis on the particular object as well. Yes. Um, so I like that. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, maybe highlighting that there are different categories of objects that we can pay attention to, and each teacher may have a particular preference. Yes. To say, mm, you know, I want you to, to focus on, you know, very distinct things, but they're different types of experiences, and, and so we can choose different objects. It's, it's just to show that there's such a wide variety and so we don't get lost and go oh my god what what object should i be looking at yes. that we can we can narrow the focus down which is helpful um yes to to refine our ability to pay attention to those things to to develop that that mind th- yes. that can can make the distinctions yes and then maybe I'll add to this um, that um, in Asia, they have a little bit, when I say Asia, I'm thinking of like Burma and Thailand in particular, that um, look at the Satipatthana Sutta. Very often, you know, one teacher, they will be convinced this is what you should pay attention to. Everybody else is wrong. This is what you should do. All that stuff in the Satipatthana Sutta. They have a little bit more um, dogmatic approach. Whereas here in the West, we've taken a little bit from here, a little bit from there, and kind of mixed them together and created something completely new. And so the way that we practice here in the West is um, a little bit more relaxed in terms of which object you choose. But in Asia, there are particular teachers who will say, this is the only way everybody else is wrong. So, yes, I think you've kind of answered my question, but a couple things to talk about my practice 
I can't talk about anyone else's, and then kind of a question. Um, I've tried a number of these methods. Some I found helpful, some interesting, some unhelpful to me. Um, I do, all, however, find myself developing my own techniques. Um, recently, I've been practicing trying to be mindful while driving the car. Because when I'm driving the car, I should be mindful. I should be in the moment. But usually I'm not. Usually I'm worried about tomorrow's schedule or trying to relive something in the past. And so when I do come back to the moment, I usually say, I'm here because I am. I'm back in the moment. And the little verbal mantra cue helps me develop the attitude of being mindful. And when I'm coming back from fretting on something in the past, I usually say, I'm here, I'm free, because I'm in the moment. Um, so a lot of things I've dealt like that. My question kind of is, it seems like, for me, the orientation is developing mindfulness and the meditation techniques is a do-it-yourself project. There's tremendous amounts of valuable teachings, but for me, it's pick and choose what works the best for me and go from there. Can you speak to that? Mm -hmm. This is a great point. So I think that um, it, um, we get to explore what do we hold to be authoritative? The text, Satipatthana Sutta, teacher, what Gail Fronstall is saying, Experience. Well, this was easier, that was more difficult. Which do we follow? And we get to explore. What is our relationship? Do we think that what's written down from thousands of years ago is what's true, is closest to the time of the Buddha, and is what we should do? Or do we say, you know, this is uncomfortable, and I don't want to do it, or this feels more comfortable, this makes more sense to me, I want to do that. So each of us gets to find our relationship to what we think is authoritative and the direction to go. I will also say that it's, I, teachers are enormously helpful because my experience has been, and anybody who's been on retreat has the same experience, I imagine, that when you're on retreat, there's you know, instructions that are given in the meditation hall, you know, here's what to do. And then you have meetings with the teacher. And the teacher will either give, um, augment the instructions they will personalize instructions for you, depending on what you're reporting to them, what's happening for you. So you get some personalized instruction. Sometimes it's wildly different than what they're saying to everybody else in the hall. Sometimes it's exactly the same. It's enormously helpful to have somebody who has so much experience to be able to listen to you and to give some guidance. So I think there's a lot that we can do on our own. We could read books. We can come to things like this. We can take intro classes. But others, in my own experience, kind of one-on-one -on -one with a teacher has a lot of value. But, of course, what the teacher tells you is only based on what you tell him or her. So you have to kind of like get to know yourself and know what works. And then you get to define, well, what is work? mean? Does that mean you're more relaxed? Or does it mean that you have greater self-understanding? Or maybe does it mean that your spiritual life 
is you feel like is blossoming in a way that it wasn't before. And maybe the purpose for meditation, while you're meditating, medita- meditating, evolves as you practice. So what works, you know, will be different. So is that helpful? I kind of understood, I kind of tried to say each of us will find our way with that. Okay, so I'm going to talk about mind states and mind objects so quickly because these are like really, I'll say mind states, you know, if we look at the table here, just to notice, is delusion here, which is kind of hard to notice, is lust here? You know, just to notice, I kind of talked about this earlier, that attitude. And then mind objects, even if you don't know what these are, five hindrances, five aggregates, six sense spheres, seven awakening factors, four noble truths, those Buddhists and their lists, right? I love these lists. For me, I'm one of those people, I just love them. But these uh, lists are categories of experience. So one way that I've heard this last uh, foundation, mind objects, explained, it's like putting on your Buddhist goggles, <laughs> your Buddhist spectacles, and kind of noticing, is this experience, is this part of a hindrance? that's going to get in the way or is it part of a factor of awakening that's going to help towards uh, awake, uh, help towards awakening so or is it part of the four noble truths which is that foundational teaching or is it part of uh, the aggregate or the six sense spheres which is a way in which we uh, understand what does it mean to have a self I'll just use these really broad categories so these Dhammas are categories that we can use to classify our experience. And I don't have a lot of experience of, I guess actually I do. I've done a lot of practice with the hindrances and the awakening factors. So without being told to do, that's kind of just what happens. So it's um, one way that we can explore this. I think it's time for a break. We've been here for a while. Um, Let's take 15 minutes. It's 11.10, so let's come back at 11.25. And if you have some questions about what I've talked about so far, you're welcome to come up here and ask me. I'm going to talk about concentration um, when we come back. Thank you.